Hi, I'm Callie. And I'm Rachel. And we are Pelvic Service Announcement. I don't know if this episode was interesting to me or terrifying. Or a little bit of both. Yeah, the stuff <laughs> of nightmares. Um, I got this idea for an episode when I was listening to the radio and somebody had called in and they were like asking about maggots and people were like, there's no way we actually use like maggots in medicine. That's like a medieval thing. And I was like, no, we do like, Oh, contraire. Yeah. PTs do wound care and maggot care or treatments with maggots is, is, is so awesome. And so that was actually part of our education was how to use maggots mm-hmm. for wound care. So I was like, okay, what other things, like what other, like, what's the history of medicine look like? What are some medieval practices? What are some things that people think are medieval, but we still use today or things that might have root in medieval medicine? And I think we both just kind of went down a rabbit hole. So many different rabbit holes <laughs> on this. <laughs> so honestly, this might be like a, this is gonna a, be a two-parter. Yep. A two-parter. Yeah. We might circle back. Uh, like I always joke with my patients, like if we're doing traction, like I always joke with them. I'm like, listen, I'm pretty sure this started when some dude was laid up on the rack in medieval like, torture, like, chamber. Not, torture chamber. <laughs> and you know, he was just laying there all stretched out and just like, oh, a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah. Right there. Let me hang out here for like 10 minutes and I'll tell you everything you need to know. Like he's I'm like convinced. walking around the next day. My back feels so much better. And they're like, have you seen like John? He's walking so Literally. much straighter. <laughs> I thought he went to see like the torture chamber. Like what's okay. going on? What's going on in there? So, and I always joked in PT, PT school. school. I yes. was like, I need to be drawn and quartered. Like, I remember you said that. I was like, that's really dark. Did she just say that? Wow. <laughs> We spent so much time just like hunched over our computers and our notes, just studying. I was like, I just need to be drawn and quartered. Like I need my joints ripped out of their Whenever they would ask like for a volunteer in lab, who wants to be the volunteer to demonstrate traction? Rachel's hand (laughs) shot up so fast. She was like, please pick me. It's like, even if this only lasts for two minutes while we demonstrate this, I don't care. There was one time we were, I think we was in our modalities class. We were learning about like e-stem and heat and cold and all the different like modalities that we have at our disposal. And doctor, I was like the volunteer to show and Dr. Gary like set me up so nice. He like got me a heat pack (laughs) and got me an extra pillow and propped my feet up. And then he turned the lights off and he was like, how does that feel? And of course, like the rest of the class is still in there. And I'm like, I will be asleep within the next 30 seconds. (laughs) I was so comfortable. I was so upset when I had to get up. I wish we could have him on this show show just to like that would be so cool just so you guys can understand the calming presence that he has like you can hear it in his voice he just doesn't ever get yeah like excited like upset everything's just all good his volume is very very like I wouldn't say he's monotone but like gentle he's very very gentle and like we would you could just tell I mean so many of us just went into his office to just like rant and vent and stress and cry and just be in there and yeah. then we all walk out just like I feel so much better yeah yeah <laughs> he's just like just it's a good guy be okay <laughs> 
You're like, it is. He's the best. It He's is. the best. But yes. So all of these things, I had so much fun I researching stuff like this. And and there's just, actual like good research on it too. Like I found a lot of research. Yeah. This wasn't Wikipedia information. Yeah, no, Everything this, I have was from like research articles. Legit articles and recent articles too. I found, I found a couple just from like 2020, 2019. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff on some of these practices that that we still use yes so do you want to start yes a history of pt in general or do you want to get right into the maggots let's do we'll start with pt and then we'll go back to like the middle ages so physical therapy in terms of medicine is actually relatively new Mm -hmm. so back in the early 1900s late 1800s Around World War One time and a little before that, there was two things that really kind of spurred the development of physical therapy. And the first one was the um, raging polio virus that was just like ravaging our nation. People were getting polio. It was an epidemic. I mean, it was a polio epidemic. So polio affects the muscles. It, it, um, causes basically weakness it can leave you like without the use of your legs or different body parts this these were the people if you heard people who had to live in the iron lung those are your polio people so some people it wasn't that severe they didn't have to do the whole iron lung thing but between that and then world war one where we were having these wounded soldiers the um practice of physical therapy along with orthopedic surgery kind of developed hand in hand I thought that was really cool too just kind of seeing like it really professionalized physical therapy Mm -hmm. and it really made it it just all the more kind of focused and I thought it was really cool in during world war one the nurses that were kind of tasked with doing the more movement therapy with soldiers were called reconstruction aides. I thought that was such a cool day. I was like, that is so cool. And these aides, these reconstruction aides began working with soldiers during kind of like 1918 ish. And a woman named Mary McMillan and some of the fellow aides founded the women's physical therapeutic association in 1921, which would eventually turn into the American physical therapy association, which is our governing body as PT. So I thought that was awesome. Which how cool is it that this is really like a woman created field because it's started off as nurses who were doing this Mm -hmm. and in a lot of the research I found the nurses who were getting their patients up and moving them and like making them go on just something as simple as walks or some nurses were even taking patients through daily exercises those patients were doing astronomically better than the patient patients that just laid in bed and that's when they were like oh there's something to this movement thing so shout out to Mary she was also the first president of the physical therapeutic association so She's kind of a a big deal. Kind Kind of of a big deal. deal. Yeah. The 1920s and 30s is when we really start to see physical therapy as a whole just kind of um, develop even further. So they go from calling them um, physiotherapists or reconstructive aides to physical therapy physicians, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, 
in terms of, oh no, sorry. They, um, they had physical therapy physicians and then they had these aides, these physiotherapists that were providing the services to help treat kind of those, those wounded veterans and things like, or wounded soldiers, things like that. And yeah, it just developed from here. I have a whole article if we want to talk about like legislature and everything like that, but I don't know that you guys want to be bored with that because we have so much other things. We have so many other things to talk Um, about. The only other thing I did want to talk about is, and I get asked this all the time because pelvic floor is kind of a buzz, buzzword right now. It's very, very popular because we're like, oh, research backs this up. Oh, this is actually Mm -hmm. amazing. And people ask me, is this new? In terms of medicine as a whole, sure. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't been around since the middle ages, but really the 1970s is when it was really founded. Um... We have a woman by the name of, where is her name? Dorothy, I'm going to butcher this last name, Mandelstam, but they called her the queen of continents. And so basically she was in charge of continence care in the UK while working for the Disabled Living Foundation. And she was the first non-medical member and the first physiotherapist to be admitted into the International Continence Society. Oh, I love that. So basically her and then um, later this woman named Joy Laycock joined Dorothy and together with some other women, they just kind of started revolutionizing continence care. Dr. Arthur Kegel came up with the Kegel exercises. Arnold. Arnold. This is Arthur in this article. I got Arnold. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Who knows what his name is? I know. <laughs> Let me see. This is Arthur. I don't know. Maybe. The- I have no idea. I Arnold see- sounds right. I see though. Arnold. Anyway, okay. Okay. his last anyway, name was Kegel, Dr. and that's what Kegel he's known for. <laughs> came up with the Kegel exercises first, I guess. And so he's kind of, but to me, I'm like, did he do that much? I'm like, I don't know. He did invent the, per, I cannot pronounce this word, the perineometer. And so basically just kind of a way to geni- like actually measure strength of the pelvic floor muscles. So I guess we'll give it to him. Yeah. We should do an episode on... Uh, Dr. Sims, the quote unquote father of gynecology, <gasps> who is actually probably the worst person worst. to ever okay. walk the face of this okay. earth. And I don't think they call him the father of gynecology anymore. He's no. lost that title. Hence the quote unquote. Yeah. Quote, no. Okay, he lost so his statue. Maybe he lost we'll make that. that part three. Maybe. We'll, this will be a three part series. This part three. Just, yeah. Part three is going to be a waste, way fun. A little bit of a true crime. And yeah. We'll dip our toe yeah. into the true crime water. We will. Um, so, yeah. So, it's really been around since 1970s, 1980s. So, new-ish, but not as new, like, not within the past 10 years new. And there's plenty, it's old enough that there's plenty of research to back it up. Now, medicine in general. I, you could go back forever. Like, when I was doing some research on honey, it was back in, like, ancient Egypt and things like yeah. that. But... Overall, for for our purposes, we're going to go to the Middle Ages when the practice of medicine is still kind of rooted in Greek tradition a little bit. So there was this idea way back when, ye olden times, that the body was made up of four quote-unquote humors. So yellow bile, phlegm, ew, black bile, and blood. So there's these four humors in the body, and these are controlled by the four elements, 
fire, water, earth, and air. And so when it when someone was diseased or sick, the idea was there was an imbalance of these humors that caused the disease process. And so the idea was you needed to purge the excess of disease or purge whatever it is by bleeding, cupping, and leaching. And you could go down way different, way so many rabbit holes because then kind of as the Catholic church takes over disease is seen as punishment. Mm. So there really was no treatment. It was like pray to a saint because you're being punished. And if God wills it, you'll get better. So we had actually from Greek medicine to then like middle, late middle ages, when the Catholic church really takes over, we actually see a decline in medical advances. We see, we go back in the dark ages. That's why, because we were just like, science is out the window. Like, we're not going to pay attention to that at all. If you're sick, you're being punished by God. And it was actually a horrible time for people. Which is oh, the worst time. And this is on, this is also when we saw the black death and the black plague, why pestis, you know, whatever you want to all the different names that it has for it. And I listened to a podcast series a couple of weeks ago and it was like a four or five part series on the black plague. And it is so fascinating and just not only the black plague in and of itself, but also then the correlations that we saw with COVID and like how yeah. we dealt with it as a modern society. And it was like, actually very similar how people dealt with it, how people responded. Like you had the people that was just like, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. And they shut themselves off from society and just literally just locked, just became shutaways. And then you had the exact opposite end of that where people were just like, well, we're all good. Everything sucks and we're all going to die anyway. So let's just live life to the fullest. But there was actually some practice with the humors and the black plague and seeing how there, there were a couple different strains of the black plague, a couple different like versions of it. And there was like the yellow plague and the, and the black plague and everything like that. And so they actually kind of treated it with the elements almost, and they weren't far off from being from like true genuine yeah. science and, and medicine, but it was definitely that era of, and there were so many other things that were happening at the same time as the black death. There were civil wars. There were other natural disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes that like, it was so bad. And so many people died that they genuinely were like, there is no way that this is not retribution from God Yeah, because there is no way there is there, there's no other explanation that all of these terrible things would be happening at the same time. It's fascinating. It's, it's crazy. Go, like do some research. If you have time to just dive into the black plague and everything that was happening at that time, it was fascinating. So the like official stance of the church, they call it the church, which is the Catholic church. Cause that was like the superpower. Big yeah. yeah. Big superpower at that time. So their like official stance was the black death was God's punishment for the sinfulness of humankind. So the cure or the way like people were invoking Christ, the Virgin Mary, saints for help. People believe that they had like they had sinned. And so they had to they had to show their true repentance by inflicting pains on themselves. So that's like 
if you've ever seen, um, what's it called? A flagellants or like yes. people who like would hit yes. themselves. They, and they talked about that in this podcast. Oh my gosh. Fascinating. And so they would literally like put on shows, like literal performances on a stage and be like, we will take the sins. We will take the punishments of the flesh. Oh my and gosh. it was wild crazy why yeah so basically that's how they were showing their true love to god true repentance of being a sinner so that was crazy like um, i said rabbit holes <laughs> yeah rabbit holes <laughs> however today we understand the black death also known as the bubonic plague is spread by a bacillus called yersinia pestis why pestis yeah why pestis yep um and so that can travel from person to person through air saliva as well as the bite of infected fleas or rats you think about middle ages there was fleas and rats and all kinds of just every nook and cranny you could imagine they were everywhere side note um possums yeah are actually immune to this bacillus and they eat the fleas hmm. that carry it. Interesting. So if you have a possum hanging around, just let it be because it'll let protect it be. you from the <laughs> <laughs> protect you from the black. See, plague. I'm telling you, rabbit holes. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we have the humors. <laughs> so the humors, leeching and bloodletting. Yes. We do not bloodlet any longer. We recognize people's blood needs to stay in their bodies. So we do not just cut you and bleed out your sickness. But We'll stick a leech on you. Leeches are still Leeches. widely used. And we were actually taught this. This is like this is accepted medical practice. Medical practice. Um, the amount of research I found so on much. leeches was crazy. I so sat there. Much. I probably looked at leech research for over 30 minutes. It was, I had a hard time like narrowing same, it down. Same. It's crazy. So basically, leeches... Um, produce like an anti-coagulant property so they stop blood from clotting and that can be super super beneficial in so many things so many different ways and there's a lot of newer research that's coming out on just everything that is in their saliva and so not only do you have the anticoagulant Hirudin, but they also have like anti-inflammatory effects and enzymes and platelet inhibitors and there's research for heart diseases and cancers. cancer the cancer, cancer was crazy being treated with leeches and knee osteoarthritis i yeah so it's insane let me just find okay basically they found that um the combination of the anticoagulant leech medicine leech saliva could be more powerful or as powerful as anti-metastatic drugs so basically the stuff in this leech saliva was helping cancer not to spread which i think is crazy yeah so So it became really popular in the 1800s in you know europe asia and the americas again mainly due to the humors because one of those humors is blood and so if you think about it it's like okay well if we have an imbalance of these humors one of them is blood leeches drink blood easy fix fix. and so like kelly said today we don't do it as 
a a system of bloodletting, but it can today it can be used to remove congested blood and reestablish blood networks. It can be used to treat hypertension, varicose veins, hemorrhoids, skin problems, arthritis, and it is inexpensive. There's very little maintenance with the leech. Like literally, you just stick it on there, and once it's done, it's done. Like, and it just it'll just let go. So, a quick note on that. If you go to the hospital and they stick a leech on you, they didn't go to the pond out back and yes. grab. These are mad, These are uh, lab-grown, yes. medical-grade leeches. These are not just like, oh, hey, we went swimming in the creek yonder. <laughs> and <laughs> we're pulling these leeches no, off. <laughs> only certain species yes. of leeches are considered medically safe, and they are governed by the FDA. So yeah. this is a well-protected research. These are medicinal leeches. Don't think that just because you have a bruise that won't go away that you, you can could just, just go out to the right. creek and get, <laughs> get a few new friends. That's not what we're saying. No, no, no. no. Um, but yeah, I did cringe a little bit at the thought of Ugh. using a leech for a hemorrhoid. I know. That made me cringe But so when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because all a hemorrhoid is is a vein. It's a vein. It's just a, it's just a, pop, pop, a pop little blood vessel. So you so just stick a leech on there. When you think about... Do I want to go? And I think Rachel was t- talking. Rachel made this comment, and I was like, "You're right. You're right." Um, I was like, "Oh, hemorrhoids, leeches," and she was like, "However, I'd rather do that than have a uh, hemorrhoidectomy, which is surgical removal with possible complication leading to the removal of half the anal sphincter." And then guess what? Now you got fecal incontinence. Like I ugh. stick a leech on the butthole. Stick. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things (laughs) in the grand scheme of things and like i said they don't they don't typically stay on for very long like they're not that big 30 45 minutes maybe an hour they're not very big and again once they're done they just let go so there's really little maintenance they're really cheap and it's a better option than you know a a surgical procedure or like the procedure I don't know what a varicose vein procedure is but it's a surgical like you're getting cut so then you've got a risk of infection now there is a little bit of risk of infection that was what I did see with leeches there is a risk for infection but when you look at surgery and the risk of infection or nosocomial infection which is a hospital acquired infection after surgery versus the risk leech it's it's actually way less so i don't know ask your provider about a leech i did find um in this article called the uh it's called european medicinal leeches new rules in modern medicine this was published in the journal of biomedicines in april of 2020 so pretty recent they found that leeches placed on the knee often achieved comparable or even better pain relief than conventional drugs and patients reported that mobility was restored and benefits of leech therapy were sometimes present after six months. For knee osteoarthritis, you can use leeches. Is that not wild? That is crazy. And what's also bizarre is they've been doing this in China for years. years. Like, no, probably centuries, centuries. Dec- decades. And we're just now coming out with research that's like, oh, there's something to that. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, I think, you know, kind of at first it was just kind of like, eh, it works. We don't really know why. And then it's just kind of like, okay, no, now we know why. Yeah. And the implications for this, for future research and future medicine is crazy yeah absolutely wild um i could talk about leeches all day but we've got to move on we got to move on so another thing they did with these humors was 
cupping. When I kept reading articles, they did cupping. And I was like, oh, we do cupping. We do cupping. And I looked. It was a little little different. Um, so they would basically, in some form, like, I, there were some terrifying-looking devices. They would either take a scalpel and slice a vein, or they had this, it was like a wooden block. It kind of looked like a stamp, like a wooden stamp, but it had spikes. Mm. And they would, like, whack or hit and puncture the skin and then they would do cupping where they would put a little piece of lint set it on fire as that burns it it it, um uses up all the oxygen and creates a vacuum seal around that area and it would draw the blood out from the the scoring or the cutting that had been made so we we cup a little different Just a little bit. We cup a little bit different. We're not trying to draw any blood here. Yeah. Um, We don't do the fire in the cups just because, I mean, that's a safety hazard and we've got... I really want to get it done though. Better way. Yeah. There's a lot of chiropractors, massage therapists that do it with the fire, not with the... They don't cut you, but they do the fire. But we have these really cool cups with kind of a suction device on the end and there's a little like suction gun. You hook up to it and you pull out the air to create that vacuum and then you just take the little gun off my husband would get cupped all the time during the season like all the time just all up and down his back we do it in therapy sometimes honestly I haven't cupped since I was a student not because it's not indicated just because I honestly forget about it sometimes I forget about it too but if I think that uh patient wouldn't necessarily tolerate dry needling or if they Mm -hmm. really don't want to be needled cupping is a really really good option a really good option and there's good good research behind cupping for pain control things like that um it it says the strongest evidence for cupping therapies benefit is for treatment of pain particularly musculoskeletal pain so yeah. Not humors, but musculoskeletal pain. Well, what does physical therapy uniquely treat? Musculoskeletal pain. So so that is, I'm like, I wonder if that's where we got that originally, if that's where that came from. I'm sure it is. I didn't do enough research on cupping because I'd already gone on 50,000 rabbit holes. <laughs> I was like, okay, I just need to get the facts about cupping instead of all the million rabbit holes, yeah. but or rabbit trails or whatever. But yeah, so cupping is a really effective form of pain management. Some people, some studies say it helps in muscle recovery, things like that. So, and it, it does help with the blood flow. Basically the thought is you're kind of drawing that blood to the surface. We're not actually taking it out of the body like yeah, they were, no. <laughs> but we're still, I mean, it's a, it really is just kind yeah. of an advanced form of what they did. Yeah. If you've ever seen Michael Phelps, when was it? 2008 Olympics. We had all the, they kind of look like hickeys. They do. That's, that is the aftermath of cupping. Um, they're, they're like big circle. They look like big circle bruises. And um, my husband showed it to his little nephews and he was like, I got bit by an octopus. Yeah. I was (laughs) swimming. He was like, I was swimming and I got attacked by an octopus. They were like, Scarred that child for life. Yeah. (laughs) And they were kind of freaked out. He was like, no, no, no. It was <laughs> <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was good stuff. Nope. Cupping is great. Cupping is great. Okay. Do you want to talk about maggots? Yes, I really want to talk know, about maggots. I know you've got so much. I have so, I, <sighs> rabbit holes. Let's okay. go. So one of the, first of all, the vast majority of information 
that I am kind of citing here comes from an article called Maggot Therapy Takes Us Back to the Future of Wound Care, New and Improved Maggot Therapy for the 21st Century. This was written by Dr. Ronald Sherman in the Journal of Diabetic Science and Technology, published in March of 2009. Real quick. So maggots are only used in today's practices for wound care. And again, it's not like your nurse is going out to the dumpster and finding maggots off of last week's Chinese lunch, okay? Like this is, again, medical. These are grown and harvested maggots in a lab. And so they are not, like I said, not coming off of the dumpster. The annual cost of wound care exceeds $20 billion a year billion with 20 billion with a b and that is not including the 2 million plus lost work days that these people have to take off of work because they have this wound that won't heal and so that is what we use maggots for in today's practice and so it's kind of coming from a combination of an increased life expectancy, which is great. But at the same time, that means that conditions that were once fatal are now becoming more chronic. And you add in the antibiotic resistant microbes gives you more wounds. And which gives is you, staph. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, staph infections and... Uh, just any any sort of bacterial infection that your skin can get because of how much we prescribe antibiotics today. Again, for the most part, it's great because it means that we can beat it and we can live longer. But at the same time, the bacteria is a smart organism. And so it adapts and it changes. It literally changes its DNA and its infrastructure to resist these micro, these antibacteria drugs so that it can live longer. A side note to that is finish your antibiotics. Yes, if you're given a whole bottle of antibiotics, you take that whole bottle. Because what can happen when you feel better, it can just mean you still have some dormant bacteria. And if you don't finish the antibiotic, not all that bacteria dies. And it can mutate to exactly what Rachel was talking about to our antibiotic resistant yep. strains. Yep. So finish your antibiotic Please to destroy you. the bacteria. Yep. We don't want any more mutations. So this was really initially noted in... Um, Oh, what year was it? In like early 1920s, um, kind of around the start of World War One, military surgeons were noticing that injured soldiers that had been abandoned, lost, forgotten on the battlefield and somehow survived just laying there in their wounds when they got infested with maggots, which does happen naturally if you don't treat a wound care, if you don't treat a wound, don't heal it, dress it properly maggots can come because they are attracted to that dead flesh. These surgeons were noticing that the soldiers that were lost and forgotten on the battlefield that were still alive, that had been infested with maggots, they actually fared better and their wounds healed faster compared to the soldiers that had been immediately brought in. And so William Bayer, B-A-E-R, he was actually an orthopedic surgeon and he was the first to systematically apply maggots to wounds and see, he was like, was noticing this with his soldiers with, um, you know, the soldiers on the battlefield. And he was like, okay, well, what if we did this on purpose rather than, you know, just letting them, letting them find their way in there. And he was the first to to publish this and he was a professor at Johns Hopkins and at Baltimore Children's Hospital 
and he presented his findings and published his findings in 1929. So kind of spearheaded the way for maggot therapy in today's use. But I just thought that was so cool. Yeah, that's crazy. Fascinating. So one of the things about wound care is you've got to debride or get rid of the necrotic tissue. And there's several ways to do that. You can use, there's chemical debridement, mechanical debridement. Like therapists can go in there with a scalpel and some tweezers and take it all out. Basically, like if you have like a blister or a callus or something like that, that dead skin that kind of comes on top of it. That is what we want to get rid of. When you have a wound that doesn't heal, whether it's, you know, a diabetic ulcer or a pressure ulcer or something like that, when we have that dead tissue, it prevents healing Mm -hmm. of the live tissue that's underneath it. And if it's covering that live tissue, if it's just kind of, um, kind of a covering on top of the wound, we can't necessarily see as deep into the wound as we need to and see what else is going on. Um, If there's any tunneling, how deep it is, if there's any other infection. So we want to get rid of that dead tissue. That's where this kind of, this debridement comes in. It also reduces the load on the body. When you think about the body Mm -hmm. trying to heal itself, if you can, because the body's going to try to clean up that dead tissue to the best of its ability. So if it doesn't have to do that and it can just focus on healing, it reduces the load. And the awesome things about maggots is when you put them on this dead tissue, this narcotic or it's gross, but rotting tissue, they only eat the dead flesh. They will not touch the healthy stuff. They don't want that. So it's just a really, really awesome. It's crazy. Yeah. It's so cool. So there was a little bit of a decline in the 40s and 50s, basically due to medical and surgical advancements that we saw. And, you know, I mean, we had this rise of penicillin and all these other antibiotics that we didn't really need that maggot therapy. You know, we didn't we weren't seeing as many wounds or, um, you know, at the at this point you know, forties, fifties, world war two is over. And so, you know, we were kind of, kind of moving away from that. And one thing that I found that I thought was really cool is that one of the big complaints in the forties and fifties was, Oh, well, maggots are expensive. They were $5. Maggots were expensive. And so adjusted for inflation today, they cost the exact same. They cost the exact same. It's about, it's roughly like 80 to a hundred dollars today. But when you compare that to the other surgical interventions that we have today and how much of that is going to cost to doing a surgical debridement, hell, even an amputation, like that is going to be more expensive than a little $80 little maggots that you can get into that wound and clean it up. So I thought that was really interesting is that they actually cost the same and are comparatively much less expensive. They're easier to get and they're really easy to contain too. We've made a lot of advancements in, and there's certain dressings, certain like gauze wraps essentially that are specific for maggots and is specific to contain them. I thought that was so cool when we learned about it in yeah. class. It was like, okay, so you have to have like a little dry little cocoon for them to go when they sleep like, when they're not what? eating, have a little home for them and you contain it all like within the wound. And so like they are just happy. They get out, they can get out and get into the dead flesh, eat it up, go back to their little nest, take a nap. And then, you know, once they're done, you just, just unwrap it, them. open up the window, let the flies come out. <laughs> I thought that was so gross when Dr. Miller said that. I thought she was kidding. <laughs> I did too. I was like, that's a joke, right? But yeah, no, maggots no. are baby flies, so they will eventually turn into flies. But they're easy to remove. They're easy to get out. I mean, you know, okay, how many are you going to put in and how many are you taking out? And 
it's easy it, it's cheap it doesn't hurt and it's just more precise because if you think about trying to debride a wound with a scalpel and decide is this necrotic is it not necrotic does your hand slip and you know well, right whereas with the maggots they're just gonna go in there and do their thing yep. and they're only gonna eat that flesh so it's super super fascinating if you can get over the thought of maggots in your body i thought it was really interesting part one of the things that this article said was that the quote-unquote ick factor was actually more present in healthcare providers than it was in the patients themselves that's so funny yeah and so i remember um our professor that taught us um all of our our wound care she because we asked her we were like okay like have you ever had to place maggots and this is obviously is not necessarily it's not like you know you come in with a raging blister and the doctor's gonna be like like, maggots you're not gonna come see us no optimal physical therapy and we're gonna be like we're gonna put maggots in your pelvic floor you're gonna be like um my tear didn't heal right after birth and i'm like you know what let me put some maggots I wish you could see me right now because I have my legs crossed like as tightly as I possibly can. Rachel's overactivity is not thriving. (laughs) No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. This is kind of like a last, not necessarily a last resort, but these are used for pretty significant and extensive wounds. And so we asked our professor if she had ever placed them. And she was like, no. She was like, I've never placed them. But I did have a homeless man come into the ER that had uh, just didn't have access to health care. So he got a wound on his leg and it just didn't heal. And, you know, he was homeless. So he wasn't able to care and clean for it the way that you know, we, we need it to be. And it started to get infected and necrotized and he comes in and he pulls up his pant leg and sure enough, all sorts of maggots in there. And he was just like, yeah, they're my little buddies. And he was like, they're my little friends. And so they can do good things. But again, we would, we want, we want medicinal maggots, medicinal leeches that are grown and harvested properly, cleanly, safely. So they did get rid of those maggots. I don't, I can't remember if she said that they ended up using more maggots like if they ended up using that for hit for his treatment or if they just wrapped and cleaned it but um but yeah oh yeah that's terrifying terrifying so um one little quote to wrap it up with maggots which i thought was so cute from this article <laughs> i thought it was so precious he goes medicinal maggots are as precise in their debridement as a highly skilled microsurgeon and as attentive to their host's wounds as the most dedicated wound care nurse it is no wonder they have found their way into hearts and wounds of so many <laughs> i thought that was adorable so that's hilarious yeah. so like i said ick factor is more from the healthcare providers than it is from the patients themselves so it is still around, still used. Like I said, pretty only used for extensive wounds that need a lot of debridement, but they're cheap. They're effective. They do good work. Yeah. Yeah. If you can get over the ick factor. If you can get over the ick factor. <laughs> so the last one I wanted to talk about was honey. Yes. Because I think this one is so neat. That is so cool. And honey has actually been often upheld as a symbol of life, abundance, purity, wisdom. You see this all throughout ancient traditions. Um, Honey is associated with um, the rites of births and deaths 
ancient Egypt. Honey was born from the tears of the sun god Ra. Um, And the Egyptians actually practiced beekeeping as early as 2400 BC. That is so cool. Is that not bizarre? That's fascinating. So they used honey as offering to their deities. They um, used honey and wax during their embalming properties to preserve bodies. So, so many like crazy, crazy honey things. Um, And then you also see it throughout Indian cultures and then we start seeing it as medical material as early as 2700 BC. That's so cool. Mesopotamian clay tablets mention honey as medicine and then Assyrian medical um, medical texts also talk about honey so there's there's just so many of these examples of honey being used. Hippocrates, which most people call him like the father of medicine. So he's one of probably the most famous um, medical figures. He prescribed honey to fight fever. He also recommended it to facilitate the healing of ulcers and uh, putrulent wounds, also to treat hemorrhoids. So many things, so many things with honey. We see it used medicinally for colds throughout India, Asia, all over the place. Greece, um, even um, Arab Muslim physicians, they had like recipes for treating things like wounds and dog bites or poisons. So all these things. So to me, I'm like, okay, if it's been used, there's obviously like some kind of... There's something to this, right? You don't see it across civilizations who had no contact with each other for no reason. And then in school, we actually learned that honey can be used to treat our patients, can be used a lot during wound care. I found this study that said evidence for clinical use of honey in wound healing as an antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and antiviral agent. Yeah, it's a review. So all the things that covers all it. Okay, not antifungal, but everything else. I'm like, it's all the it's all the things. And basically, a review. So they did, you know, looked at a ton of articles, and what they found was honey has antioxidant, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory properties. It can be used as a wound dressing to promote rapid and improved healing. These effects are due to the honey's antibacterial action, secondary to its high acidity, acidity, osmotic effect, antioxidant content, and hydrogen peroxide content. The only thing they found it to be ineffective in treating was chronic leg ulcers. But other than that, like, and I know we learned it, it was really great for burns, Mm -hmm. really a lot of wound, but there's dressings or gauze gauze type things that are literally infused with with honey honey now it's medical grade it's sterile it's all the things but honey is honey it's like from bees honey yeah and it it's been used forever and it's used extensively still and with the anti-inflammatory properties it would make sense to use it for a cold or for anything like that just anything you want to calm down inflammation in the body I also know a lot of people who use it for allergies. If you, I've heard, and I didn't research this, so this is just hearsay. (laughs) Um, But I've heard if you'll eat local honey, since the bees are pollinating with all the things in your area, you're like introducing the allergens into your body into a safe way and it helps you 
with allergies. My sister swears by this. Like she will only eat local honey and she swears that she's not had problems with allergies since she started doing that. I believe it. I believe it. And again, this is not like, this is not medical advice. This is not medical advice. We're not telling you to go to Walmart and get the honey in the little bear bottle and start spreading it all over your wounds. Okay. This is medicinal honey. There is a lot. You can actually, like if you just Google medicinal honey, you can find some really good stuff. There are specific types of honey that really depends on how it is harvested, what the bees are eating, the how process. happy the bees are, their emotional distress at the time. You know, all of those things play a really big role in the potency of honey. And so making sure you're getting like, like I said, medical grade honey, not the little clover bear honey yes. is going to be important. But um, I just, I just, it's just so cool. Just everything. This article is called Honey in Wound Healing, an updated review. This was published in October of 2021 in Open Life Science. And it basically says honey is a safe and natural substance effective in the inhibition of bacterial growth and the treatment of a broad range of wound types, including burns, scratches, diabetic boils, malignancies, leprosies, fistulas, leg ulcers, traumatic boils, cervical and varicose ulcers, amputations, burst abdominal wounds, septic and surgical wounds, cracked nipples, and wounds of the abdominal wall. And so all of the compounds that it has, flavonoids, phenolic acid, organic acids, enzymes, vitamins, all of those things help to improve that healing process. And I just thought it is just fascinating all of the things that we can use honey for and everything that it has in it. And it's so natural. It's cheap. It's easily accessible. And it just does so, so much so much it's so cool and in one of the ancient indian cultures you talked about it not all honey is created equal they basically had like eight different types so they had specific specific bees and it was these eight types that were um distinguished is what it called so even the ancient even they figured it out like it's so crazy it's so crazy to me how long that this has been a thing and that we still use it today that's crazy so if you're sitting here and you're like, you guys have a pelvic floor podcast, how did you not talk about the history of birth and weird birth control things? Listen. Oh, that needs a whole episode. You guys, <laughs> buckle up. We tried and we were like, oh, we only have an hour and a half to record and we've yeah. got an hour and a half of birth material <laughs> in and of itself. So consider this your introduction. We are going to cover this again. Rabbit holes. The things it is terrifying. The that I, found. <laughs> I am not well. No, the and thing it's horrific. Yeah, and one of the things that I found that, and I, I thought it kind of kind of summed it up was basically that in kind of the more medieval ancient times, when the church again capital C big C church was essentially the ruling governing body made all the decisions pretty much kind of controlled how people thought. That's just how, that's just how it was. The religion was the forefront of every society back in, you know, 16 to 1800s, that mm-hmm. time frame. It was their belief that women should suffer and find pain through childbirth for the atonement of Eve's sin. And so that's kind of why we don't really see a whole lot of improvement in 
obstetrics and gynecology until like the 19th freaking century. And even then it is still, I would say even today, it's still at its infancy, pun intended, of, you know, the the care that we can can provide it and, and the developments there. And so yeah we're gonna have a whole episode we just, on we we tried to give it to you all in this we, and we just were like there's absolutely no. no way and i think you guys will enjoy it it deserves it deserves the due a whole diligence yeah. it deserves we're gonna go down every rabbit every hole rabbit hole there is i just found one like little blurb of basically how they try in the this was like the 1000s it was like 1035 how they they felt like if you did these certain things you could make a male or a female child well no because nobody wanted a female child and it was like terrifying so there's just so many things y'all guys get excited we're excited it's gonna be a wild ride and I thought this episode was a wild ride like I said some of the stuff the blood some of the bloodletting practices some of the practices we could have talked about were just maybe a little too graphic but i don't know let us know what you want yeah but here's a little brief taste c-sections c-sections are have there's references for c-sections through ancient hindu egyptian grecian roman and other european folklore um there's a lot of kind of rumor that it is actually named after julius caesar uh, that is not that is not true that is false news fake news fake news um because julius caesar's mom lived long after his birth and back then women did not survive c-sections so there was no blood transfusion there was no 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 real surgeries no real um anesthesia it was just like save the baby yeah and that's somebody's heir to something exactly this was usually only performed when the woman was either dead or dying and only when the child would survive and only when it was like no we need this baby like we have to increase our population or you know we need this heir we need to make sure you know if it's a boy you know whatever we can can find a new wife like we gotta have the heir we gotta have the baby yeah um the term cesarean section was coined in 1598 i'm going to butcher this man's name so i apologize by jacques guillemou i love the accent jacques i'm assuming he's french with a name like jacques um (laughs) he wrote a book on midwifery again i I held myself back from getting down that rabbit hole. We'll save it for next week. <laughs> but 1598 is when we saw the the term cesarean section really coined. And again, really at this point, saving the mother was really not necessarily the priority and wasn't even really a possibility until the 19th century. But the first recorded successful cesarean section in the British Empire was conducted between 1815 and 1821 by a woman who was masquerading as a man. Can we slow clap? And, and like, can, let's just take a second for James Miranda Stewart Berry. She, because at, at this time, women were not allowed to practice medicine. They were not accepted Witchcraft. into medical schools. They were witches. <laughs> <laughs> if you've watched Outlander, you know. Um, and so she masqueraded as a man to perform surgeries and be a doctor. And she was freaking brilliant, clearly, because she was the first one to do a successful C-section, which I thought was amazing. I love that. So that is coming from Cesarean Section, a brief history from the U.S. <laughs> National Library of Medicine. We will have a lot more information on that next week. I'm so excited. And probably the week after, because again, rabbit holes. 
This is just all so interesting. You got to know where you came from to help you figure out where you're going. And I just think it's fascinating and so badass that so many of the founders in physical therapy, pelvic floor, C-sections, gynecology came from women. Women. So. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) So tune in next week. And then maybe the week after for maybe this for will be our true crime crossover, our, our three part <laughs> series, um, basically of rabbit holes that Callie and Rachel got down. Yeah, pretty when much researching this episode. <laughs> oh man! All right, Rachel, do you have a patient win? Yes, um, and I may have done this one already, so forgive me. But I know I did a part one. I had a patient that was getting ready for an elk hunt. That was her big thing. Mm-hmm. I started seeing her at uh, probably beginning of spring-ish of this year. And she told me, she was like, I have an elk hunt in the fall. And she's like, and I leak with running, I leak with hiking. And so I just want to be able to go on this trip and have a successful elk hunt without worrying about leaking. And so I think part one of that, that I did a couple weeks ago was she was finally able to get back to running, had no leakage. And so she did finally go on her elk hunt and was completely successful, had no leakage, no problems the entire time. And I mean, this girl hiked, like if you've never been elk hunting before, that is something that you train for because it Mm -hmm. is, you got to pack it out. Not only do you have to pack all of your equipment for the hike itself, But then if you do end up getting an elk, well, then you got to dress that out and carry it all the way back to camp. And so you are out in the wilderness, in the Colorado wilderness for days at a time. You're out by the creek. Literally, (laughs) you are out yonder. (laughs) (laughs) You are out yonder. Um, And so, yes, update on her. She did fantastic through the elk trip. I don't think they ended up getting an elk, but she did say that it was a really successful time. She had a really, really good time and didn't have to worry about a thing. Successful for the elk too. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. That's really great. I'm glad she had fun. Yeah, she did. Um, my patient win is actually like a win, I think for medicine in this area in general, because I had a patient come in postpartum about eight months postpartum and no sexual dysfunction, no bowel dysfunction, no urinary symptoms. She just noticed her diastasis hadn't closed. She had a diastasis recti after giving birth and it hadn't closed and lifting was like a little bit funky. And she was like, I don't want it to get worse. And I have the time and I just want to address this. And she talked to her midwife and her midwife was like, well, come here. So she came here and it was fantastic we got to look at strength we got to look at mechanics we got to look at some movement pattern type stuff and then work on sending her home with the corrected way to move the correct way to breathe um, ways to properly strengthen to encourage that diastasis closure everything like that so she didn't come in when things were severe and she was like oh I'm horrible I'm in so much pain I can't do that she came in before it was a problem which means I'm not gonna have to see her very much she's gonna do great and it's making her life easier and her treatment so much easier in the long run. And to me, that that. almost prevented, not preventative, because she did have the separation, but compared to when we typically see patients, it was a form of preventative medicine was, was huge. And we've talked about 
for for everyone preventative medicine is a win it's yeah. a win for the insurance companies because it's yep. cheaper so seeing her now maybe we need four visits versus let's say she waited till she had had three kids and things were more severe so we've now got urinary bowel all these other dysfunctions well then maybe she needs 15 to 20 visits and so it's just a win all the way around. It's a win for the patient. It's a win financially for the patient and for insurance companies. And so I love that there was just an emphasis placed on what I would consider preventative medicine because there really weren't a ton of functional That's limitations. That's beautiful. So big win, big win. Yes. And your PSA this week is we all need to, at, um, well, I guess Thanksgiving will be passed when this airs, but we all need to just say um, a quick little moment of thanks that we live in the uh, this century and not in ye olden times. Maggots and leeches are your friends. Blo- <laughs> yeah. Glad that we're cupping properly and not bloodletting. <laughs> that was my just my thought the whole time. Like looking at height. There was so much we didn't talk about. Hygiene practices. Oh, yeah. So many things. You're I'm lucky like, this is a podcast and we can't show you pictures. I'm like, there's a reason people died at age like 20. Yeah. Like 25 was an old man. Yeah, no wonder. Like, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You can die from a paper cut back then. Yep. Good grief. Okay. Well, tune in next week for what will hopefully be another super, super exciting, super fun. <laughs> you get to listen to us just geek out, which is what we do <laughs> best. Oh, I love it when we have the time to just go down rabbit holes. It was actually so much fun. fun. Okay. Well, we will see you guys next week. I hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yeah. Ate way too much turkey. Yep. And we're going to hopefully maybe gross you out a little bit more next week. Yes. Bye. Bye.